You are listening to Concrete Conversations, an informative podcast brought to you by the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. We represent the concrete masonry and segmental paving manufacturers in Australia. Our podcast will discuss technical information and case studies with some special guests from our industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. On today's Concrete Conversations, I am absolutely thrilled to be here with Stuart Holmes. Stuart won our new entrant award category with Wabi Sabi House using some beautiful and very brutalistic concrete masonry block. Welcome, Stuart. Oh, thanks, Elizabeth. Great to be here. Stuart, just before we get started, I wonder whether you could talk to me a little bit around your childhood and growing up. Well, I grew up in Dunsford. In Victoria. In Victoria. I lived there until I was, I suppose, 16 and then went off to boarding school for a couple of years. Being a country boy, I was a little bit intimidated by Melbourne and then actually chose Deakin Architecture because it was on the coast and my parents had a holiday house in Ocean Grove. So I joined the what became a community of architects and builders, building students living down on the coast. And where did you sort of, like, how did architecture come to you? Like, where did you find that calling, so to speak? Yeah, well, I've been interested in art and design broadly since childhood, and architecture was a part of that. You know, childhood visits to the NGV and Heidi reinforced the architecture side of it. There was some appeal in the idea of becoming an artist, but um, the rationalist in me was too strong for that. By late in secondary school, I was leaning towards industrial design with the ultimate goal of getting into auto design or engineering. Mm-hmm. When it came to do work experience, though, the closest thing I could find was in architecture and it sort of brought home that there weren't many opportunities in industrial design in Australia uh-huh. and so architecture it was. So you did your work experience at an architectural Yeah, firm. that's right, yeah. yeah. So that was Tompkins Shaw and Evans, I'm not sure if it still exists but uh-huh. it was an old firm at the time, that was back in 88 in East Melbourne, but that was a good experience. Yeah, and then when you went to Deakin University, was it what you expected? Well, I didn't have a whole lot of expectations, I just knew that I wanted to be an architect at that stage and I suppose I had a conception in my mind that it was all going to be about design with mm-hmm. you know a bit of mathematics involved but it was much more than that and it was really very broad and we learned about the really in-depth side of the scientific side of building and architectural practice and business management history history became a major part of the studies which was really fascinating I really got into that were there any architects that you were studying that really made an impression on you during that time? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly by the late in uni, um, Tadao Amdor was a favourite. And uh, Peter Zumthor had just, in his old age, come into the spotlight with his permeables. And they were yeah, both heroes. And so you finish university and then what happens? Well, it was at the tail end of the recession, the one we had to have. Yeah. And it was really hard to get a job. I'd sent out... CV to about 30 firms and got responses to a f- from a few, but didn't get anything, didn't even get an interview out of it. And it was really only through a family friend that I managed to get an interview with a company that specialised in aged care architecture, very close to where we're sitting today, okay. and got the job. It wasn't a glamorous introduction to architecture mm-hmm. whatsoever. I had 
high expectations, I suppose, about not spending too many years before getting into the, the fun side of design and all the glamorous stuff that you imagine with architecture. But it was the deep end in terms of construction documentation and contract administration, which was actually really beneficial. And I learned a lot and there were terrific people. The work we were doing was not exciting from an architectural point of view, but yeah, there was a lot of lessons learned there. Yeah, good groundwork, so Yeah, speak. absolutely. Yeah. So how long were you there for? I was there for about six years. Okay. Yeah. And then what happened? Where did you go? Well, I suppose I was a little bit disillusioned by architecture and I had left at one point during that six years and, mm-hmm. and went traveling. Began in Turkey and I was with my eldest brother and we traveled around Europe and ended up in England and coming home by, by Thailand, I seem to recall. How did that inform what you learned? And I guess, you know, it's always interesting coming from Australia where mm. the country has a history but our built architecture is quite young. How did that impact you when you were overseas? Yeah, well, that particular trip was less about architecture than some other trips mm-hmm. have been. So I've done a lot of travelling. And, you know, the first big travel was during university, the Grand Tour of sorts. And it was such an eye-opener. And, and, and travel is one of the most important things in my life as a person, not just about seeing everything in the bigger picture, but just getting it. A holistic view of the history of architecture and where we fit into it. If you had one building overseas, probably in that first trip, what, first do you think, trip. what building had the biggest impact for you? Oh, I yeah. can uh, recall uh, Villa Maria in Finland. Oh, right. Alvaro building is occasionally open to the public and um, some friends were able to get me on board. And yeah. We had a fantastic look through that. Yeah, excellent. All right, so you've, you've now taken a break and you've gone overseas mm. for the second time or more. And then what happens? Well, I went back to working in aged care and then I decided I had enough. Yeah. <laughs> and then took a break, went travelling again and then just hung out at the family holiday house and painted for a couple of months until oh. I ran out of money. And okay. Just as I was running out of money, one of my old colleagues gave me a call and was pleading with me to come back. And I said, no, no, I can't go back. <laughs> I actually had him in mind setting up my own thing and... Uh, he said, well, why don't you set up your own thing and work on contract? And okay. I thought, yeah, that was a good idea. So that's what I did for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I was not just contracting to them, but I was contracting to other architects. Mm-hmm. A big part of my business was making bolts wood models for other architects. Okay. And um, I was doing a, a few models for Jerry Woolridge. They put me on to Neil and Idle, who needed a bolts wood model. So I did one for them. Mm-hmm. And then Neil and Idle... For the same project, once we got the planning permit, wanted me to document their project, which I agreed to. Yeah. And I ended up doing that in their office, and I was heckled to uh, join their staff for quite a few months, and eventually I succumbed. And uh, that's where my beginnings with what became Neil Architecture, and uh, that company fell apart and formed Neil Architecture and Idle Architecture Studio. Yes. I contracted to Idle Architecture Studio for some time while Neil Architecture was setting up their gig. And then, so I was there before I began. Yes. And I took a couple of years out, worked for uh, Matt Gibson Architecture and Design. Yes. But I've been back at Neil Architecture for six, seven years. And just out of um, curiosity, how long do those models take to build? Well, it depends on the model. Um, Mm. I would say I'd usually allow... Three to four days working hard at it. Yep. But, you know, they'd be usually spread out over a couple that, of weeks. Is that a flow process for you? Do you lose yourself in that? Absolutely. It was so much fun. Yeah. Yep. I haven't done it for a while, but yeah. it was really satisfying. And do a lot of people still do that? 
Well, our company actually, or Neil Architecture, set up a, a model making branch, but it was about 3D printing. Yes, um, yeah. Ironically, there's probably more work in the 3D printing than there was in balsa wood modeling because you would have to model the components in virtually in, in the computer before you get them printed and they yeah. would just be components. You'd still have to stick them together. I wasn't really a part of that at all, but it was fun to watch. Yeah, I, I know a lot of architects have said to me they love their models, but now it's some, you know, all-cad design. And Stuart, just thinking back, was there another project that really, I guess, defined for you your love of architecture or that you look back fondly on? Well, there is a tower in um, Docklands where I got involved with the very technical side of it and mm. you know, coming up with the floor plans and determining that it needed a twin core was, I suppose, my input into, yeah. into that. It's the only high-rise building I've been involved with, but it was satisfying in that regard. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about Wabi Sabi. This is actually your house. Yes. So just talk to me about how it all came about. Wow. Well, we'd found this house, an old house from about 1930. There's the remaining half of a pair. Mm-hmm. The house to the north had been redeveloped and had you know, three storeys on the boundary. It was a horrible thing to look at. Mm-hmm. and confusing as well because council had forced the neighbours to sort of blend in the old 1930s house into this contemporary thing mm-hmm. and wasn't successful at all. And I think a lot of people got spooked by just how hard it all looked and mm-hmm. you know, there's overlays and easements all over the place. It was a very, very difficult site. I actually walked into the old house and backed out because it was just so smelly. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> it was always horrible. <laughs> and I thought, well, there's no way my wife and I could afford to buy it and just sit on it while it took years to get permits. Right, yep. And finances. Mm-hmm. And so I referred it to a client who was looking for a site to develop for a house. Mm-hmm. And he thought it was too hard and okay. too small as well because it's an incredibly narrow site. Okay. So, so what's just the dimensions? Oh, look. It's between eight and nine metres wide in total okay. and 40 metres deep. Okay. It's not a big site. It's a small yeah. site. Yeah, okay. And, uh, you know, the, getting back to the history of that project, the client that I'd referred it to thought it was too hard and I didn't want to let it pass by. And mm. also we had a holiday booked in Northern Territory yeah. when the auction was on. <laughs> so we had uh, Mimi's cousin and her partner go to the auction for us. And I was in the hotel room and Catherine pacing up and down listening to the auction. and We got it for a fair price. It was definitely, we were punching well above our weight in getting it, but um, we we're super happy. Mm-hmm. It did mean that there was a lot of elbow grease in getting it to a livable state. Right, okay. Also, so but, you, you went in and moved in? Yeah, we, we lived there for five years. Right, um, okay. Yeah, there was and a lot was of elbow grease. was the design or was that the permits? What sort of took? Oh, look, I knew I wanted to take time with it. Mm-hmm. I knew it would take time to get the planning permit and I knew it would take time to document and tender yeah. it and I knew it would take time to save enough money to just to get started. Yeah. And in the end, we went far off schedule actually. Okay. I'd say part of that was because there was a secret heritage study in the area and only someone with rocks in their head would put heritage protection on this old house, especially hanging off the side mm-hmm. of a contemporary house the way it was but uh, yeah I've seen some crazy stuff with councils and I thought well I better pull the finger out and get this going Mm -hmm. and I did so and I I was amazed I think it was not quite my record in turning around a planning permit but close to it so we got a planning permit in three months Um, so we're well ahead of schedule by then yeah and then we just uh, I took my time documenting it Mm -hmm. 
And once we got started, well, it didn't take too long to build. It was a 15-month build, okay. which was pretty good. Yeah. And landscaping came afterwards. That's, yeah, and I guess it's a very sort of Japanese-inspired. So what? just let's talk about the design. And you've used concrete block inside and out. So mm. maybe if you can sort of explain the thought process there. Yeah, well, there is a strong Japanese influence. I've always been a fan of Japanese architecture, whether it be traditional or contemporary. Mm-hmm. Concrete block is everywhere in Japan, it mm-hmm. seems. And it's like a typical detail in a suburban Japanese fence. Mm. But it's also, you know, widely used in mid-century architecture, wherever you go around the world. Plenty of it in Australia. And one of our favourite holiday places has been Hawaii, and there's lots of it there. Okay. I just really like the material, and I like the way it ages as well. Mm. At least... With the natural grey, and I've used this unsealed in our house deliberately to mm. um, to reference this idea of wabi-sabi. So it's celebrating the patina and the imperfection. And it's not just a concrete block that does that. It's a whole lot of other elements in the house, and, and it all works together really well. And it's quite cohesive. And you've used, obviously, the concrete block on the side to create screens. Just sort of talk me through that a little bit. Yeah, well, um, again, it's not an original idea, but... It's an idea I always mm. liked mm. and, you know, subtly referencing a childhood memory of my parents' house, the house I grew up in in Dalesford, where we yes. had a concrete block front fence. Okay. It wasn't blocks on the side like this. It was more traditional decorative breeze block, but yeah. I used to love climbing that as a kid. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, my nine-year-old son loves climbing this as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's nice. And you've sort of... We were talking about it in the jury that it's such a lovely gift to the street, what you've done with the garden. Was that something that you had to do? I mean, did it have to be incorporated or is that a design feature that you wanted? Well, that's very much responding to conditions of the site. Mm. Even though what is along that side of the street is double crossings, double carports mm-hmm. in off the street. It's actually incredibly steep yep. crossing down into the property. We were sort of bound by a street tree. Okay. Having said that, I wouldn't want a double crossing and a double carport at the front of the house because it doesn't create a good presence. We've always been a one-car family. Okay. And even though you, technically you can park two cars in tandem there, we were happy to stick with one car. That works fine. So, yeah, and having a garden at the front is just a nice softening of what is you know, it's fairly brutal material. Mm. When it is softened with nature, it's... Say it works really well. And Stuart, did you have any, were there any challenges? I mean, this is a sloping block, as you mm. mentioned. Yeah, the first surprise on site was that the three quarter block turned up with the twin cell or twin core, I should say. Okay, yeah. And I wanted the single core three quarter block. Yep. I didn't even realize that um, the same product has the same code. So that was a little surprise. There were a few other little surprises where when the bricklayers had laid solid parts of the fence on side with the core facing up, which was what you would normally do as yes. the capping block. Yes. And I'm like, no, that's not right. I let them get, get away with two on yes. the fence just as a talking point. Yeah, right, <laughs> yes. And, I mean, you did sort of reference extensively, you know, the journey of this with the builder and the bricklayers. Can you describe, I guess, some aspects of bringing the design to life? Look, there were lots of conversations. I thought I'd worked out everything with respect to which way the blocks had to mm. face, and I didn't think of everything as it turns out. But the builder, builder Stu, funnily enough, he's so sharp, 
And once he realised that I was very particular about how the blocks were laid, he would ask me whenever there was some sort of question. Because it's interesting, I always find, and listening to a lot of stories is around, you know, people's interpretation of how things are going to look. And sometimes it's really different from what you originally had planned or when when the product turns up, it gives you certain aspects that you have to rethink. Or sometimes people do things not the way that you intended, but it still looks good. Yeah, I think um, what you see is what was always envisaged there. Mm-hmm. There were some worries along the way that it wouldn't be carried through properly. Yeah. Not so much with the builder, but with some of the products that we used. Yeah. Because we're experimenting a bit with this. And now just to wrap the project up, I mean, look, you've used it internally and externally mm-hmm. and in the kitchen. How is it like living? What have you discovered living with Block? Well, that's great. I love it. The wabi-sabi side of it with the ageing is it's basically happened where it's exposed to water, as mm. you'd expect. So it's still fairly pristine internally. Yes. Externally, yeah, there's lots of staining and efflorescence. It's fine with me. Mm. And if it gets too wabi-sabi, efflorescence is easily brushed off with a yes. you know, decking brush or something. It's great. I love it. Well, thank you for using the block. And also just I think what we loved about this project was there were just so many different ways that we could see that you incorporated it into the design. And Stuart, you've won the New Entrant Award for the Think Brick Awards. What motivated you to enter the awards this year? Yeah, right. Well, uh, I entered the Kevin Borland Award, mm. which is for concrete masonry. It seemed an obvious category because we're using concrete masonry. Mm. And, you know, Kevin Borland was very much in the same mindset, I think, about mm. you know, the whole wabi-sabi idea. Mm and brutalism it was an opportunity as well in that not having my own practice as such i seem to be eligible for the awards Mm -hmm. whereas a lot of awards are a bit more explicit about having to have your own practice to enter and i thought it was a great opportunity it was relatively easy to enter Mm -hmm. didn't cost anything to enter not that that would have been a problem Mm. and you know the prize money is an absolute bonus. And you were there on the night and I just wondered whether you could relay some of your experiences because it had been actually two years since we'd all got together. Yeah, well, I had a ball. I sat in the uh, National Masonry table. Mm. There were some other architects there as well. It was really nice. Okay. There weren't that many familiar faces in the crowd. There were a few. That was a great night. Okay. Stuart, obviously as a student, you were learning things about architecture and then thinking back... What advice would you give to younger students studying architecture today? Well, I would say travel, mm-hmm. uh, think critically. And if you figure out that architecture is not for you, then there's no shame in doing something else. Okay, that's great advice. And I guess if I can just also ask, what's your view on the architect's role in climate change and what we're trying to do at the moment? Where do you think architecture sits in that? Oh, well, it's critical, of course. There's a lot of practices that... No, we'll trumpet what they're doing. But I, I think it's just everyone's responsibility to take it seriously mm. and do whatever they can. I think of where I work at Neil Architecture, we've been carbon neutral since the beginning, but yeah. we don't feel we need to tell everyone about it, really. Mm. I think everyone has a responsibility to do it. So, Stuart, any projects that you're working on at the moment that we should look out for? Well... Outside of architecture, I'm prototyping some chairs. Okay. <laughs> but uh, that's probably not relevant to concrete conversations. More relevant is a project in Sorrento 
that I had a big part in at Neil Architecture that reached practical completion in May. Okay. This features a fair amount of half-height concrete blocks in, again, unsealed natural grey. Yeah. And it includes a number of the ideas that we tested at Wabi Sabi House. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully we'll get this photograph sometime next year and and see where we go from there. Excellent. I look forward to seeing that. All right. And we'll probably move over now to our rapid-fire questions. Nope. Favourite colour palette? Again, I'm thinking of the Wabi Sabi house because, you know, that was uh, really thought through and, and it was referencing, you know, some peeling bark yep. from a tree in the park and where it was grey, very worn on the outside and then you know, beautiful, warm and crisp on the inside. Okay. And we followed that through with the house with the, you know, the aging grey blocks on the outside and then inside there's more pristine blocks, but yes. it's also, you know, beautiful spotted gum flooring as well as wall and joinery. It's very warm inside. It's very neutral. We had the idea of bringing colour in with furniture and other bits and pieces. That Sorry, that wasn't a very rapid answer, no, was it? No, that's right. Polished or shot glass concrete blocks? I'd say shot glass. Yep. Textured or smooth blocks? Smooth. Dark or Light. Light. This is interesting. CAD model or physical model? Hmm, both. A fun fact about concrete blocks? Oh, look, I've talked about climbing them before. Yes. <laughs> I'll say that again. It's they're great to climb when they're on their side. One interesting thing about, you know, concrete paving, Yes. I suppose, is that, you know, they're really great material that can be, you know, recycled and reused. And, yes. And one of the things we tried to do with the Wabi Sabi house was salvage and reuse as many bits and pieces as we could. Okay. And you know, there were some 13 concrete pavers found in the garden and some concrete pads for air conditioning, the old air conditioning unit. Wow, okay. um, lots of concrete garden edges as well. Mm -hmm. And so we salvaged all of that and just put it at the side of the site. And when the building was done, the landscaping began and yes. all of that was, was reused. Oh, wow. It was all planned out beforehand, but it was a bit of fun. It was just, it's a nice connection to the yes. past, apart from, you know, reducing waste and, and saving money, which were big considerations. Mm. It is a nice connection to at least part of the history of the site. Mm. Yeah, oh, great. Thank you for sharing that. Form or function? Ah, well, both. Solid blocks or breeze blocks? Breeze blocks. Early riser or a night owl? Very much a night owl. Antique or brand new? Both. Urban or rural landscape? Uh, both. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for being part of Concrete Conversations and showcasing concrete masonry so beautifully and congratulations on your win. Well, thank you very much. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for ideas of what to talk about. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.